Hello, this is Kathy Conley, and I'm at Knott County Central High School in room 112, and I'm here with some historians of the round table. And guys, I'm just going to welcome you to our school, and thank you for coming and being a part of this. And uh, I understand you're experts in the field of facts of the Civil War, so I'm going to let the guys introduce themselves, and then we'll go from there. My name's Kerry Crutcher, and I'm with the Battle of Leatherwood. I'm Jake Pigman, a sophomore at Nod Central. I've been with the Battle of Leatherwood for almost three years. I'm Kyler Calhoun. I'm also a sophomore here at Nod County Central High School. And like Jake, I've almost been here for about three years. Uh, my name's Gary Bagley. I'm with the Battle of Leatherwood. Uh, been with it since the uh, inception of the Civil War reenactment at Leatherwood, Kentucky. Okay, thank you very much. Um, guys, I'm just going to ask you a, a blanket question, so all of you are going to get a chance to answer. Um, we'll start with Carrie. How did you get interested in the Civil War? Well, I've read about it extensively. Uh, I lived in California for 34 years. And uh, I moved back to Kentucky, to my uh, grandmother's home, and I have several cousins here. And, you know, when you're a kid, your cousins always get you into trouble? Well, my cousins got me into this, and uh, they said, uh, you know, you need to get involved. And they said... Uh, that uh, all these guys, they look like bums, but they all got money because all that stuff's expensive. And we've all found that out <laughs> as we've gotten involved. So we, uh, we uh, basically are play-acting with the reenactment of the uh, Civil War. And it's a type thing that we do at Leatherwood, which is open for uh, education, uh, for entertainment, and a sense of history. So it's something which uh, is good for the public. Uh, at our battles, uh, we don't charge anything. It has free admission. And that uh, helps the whole county. And uh, we have people from all over the place actually that come from, you know, uh, throughout around the country. All right, Jake, how did you get interested in the Civil War? Well, my father and my grandfather, including me also, have always been fans of U.S. history. My Every summer I'd always go to my grandfather's house and we would sit there and talk about the wars that the U.S. has been through. And there's one that he taught me about, the American Civil War. This one really got my attention. He would sit there tell me about the war and stuff like that, that, you know, we come from a border state and neighbor, neighbor, neighbor. And whenever I was 10, I, my parents were telling me about the Civil War enactments and I should get involved with it. Well, four years later, I find myself with the Battle of Leatherwood. All right, Kyler, can you tell us how you got involved with Civil War? Yep. 
Well, uh, back in the seventh grade, uh, me and Jake went to the same school. We were still best friends. We took a field trip uh, to Leatherwood. And at first, you know, I didn't really know much about the Civil War. And after we left, you know, I sort of had this feeling that, you know, hey, that's pretty cool. So it wasn't until two months later, um, we was on Christmas break, and I was really bored. And I remembered, you know, uh, them talking about the Civil War and everything. So, uh, so I got on YouTube, and I looked up some of the videos, and... By the time that I got back from Christmas break, I couldn't stop watching them and everything. And, and then two years later, uh, when me and Jake was a freshman, we was in our first reenactment. That's wonderful. Wonderful. Okay, Gary, can you tell us how you got involved? Uh, yes, I'd be glad to. Uh, first of all, I've been sort of the type of individual that always wanted to do something other than to help improve my community and where I lived at. And I had worked extensively with the volunteer fire department in the area there. And then after we actually discovered that there was a Civil War battle, a small one, fought right there in my neighborhood. And uh, so after we, a lot of people done a lot of research and stuff on it, then they kept coming up with stuff that you know, develop people's interest in the actual battle itself. And uh, so they said, you know, why can't we have a Civil War reenactment here because there was an actual small battle fought here. So the group of us people got together and we formed an organization called the Leatherwood Reenactment Corporation and it has been going now for uh, about 17 years. And, uh, you know, it has very, been very good for the community, and it's helped develop tourism in the area, and it's also helped develop the interest in some of the school kids, as Jake and Tyler has done. Uh, you know, that's one of our main goals. If we can develop the interest in the school kids where they go dig a little deeper, learn more about it, and then they'll really find out, you know, Kentucky was a very important part of the Civil War. Okay. All right, well, this concludes our first episode of Historians of the Roundtable. Be sure to check later for further episodes. Okay, I liked it. I thought it was
Hey, this is Kathy Conley here at Knott County Central High School in room 112, and I'm sitting here once again with these wonderful historians of the round table. And today we're going to talk about interesting facts about the Civil War. And I have with me Carrie, Jake, Kyler, and Gary. And I'm just going to let them talk to us about their level or their area of expertise in the Civil War. Do you want to start, Carrie? One thing that interests me is the uh, medicine of the Civil War. All modern medicine stemmed from the Civil War. Prior to uh, that time, they had three remedies for whatever was wrong with you. They would bleed a person, say they had bad blood, or they would give them a laxative, or they would give them some noxious mixture which made them vomit. So that was the typical remedy for anything from a broken arm to colds or pneumonia. So at the time of the Civil War, the uh, doctors felt everybody bled enough, so they're not going to bleed anymore. Uh, so they said, we'll do without that remedy. And they tried uh, various medicines. They didn't know about antibiotics. That came about, I believe, in like 1928. Uh, they didn't know about germs. So that was a real problem because they would have the outhouse uphill and the well downhill. And so many got dysentery or cholera. A lot of the uh, folks were young guys who had lived at the head of the holler. And uh, when they joined the army, they had never had the childhood diseases, such as mumps, chicken pox, or measles. So when they got in the army, they all got sick. And at the uh, initial uh, start of the war, they took everybody who wanted to volunteer. They all came in. Well, uh, after a while, they decided they better start giving some of these people physicals because... Uh, the folks came in with various diseases or inabilities. They, uh, they couldn't march or something like that. And uh, then they wound up trying to get a government pension later on uh, because they, uh, they had been a veteran. So uh, they, they started doing physicals, uh, although they, the physicals weren't very thorough because they had like uh, 400 women who served as soldiers. The uh, death rate from disease was twice what it was from uh, bullets. The uh, <clears throat> Army of the Potomac was one of the first who uh, developed a hospital corps. They had uh, typically, initially, uh, the people in a battle would have their buddies would take them uh, back to the back of the field um, and they had a problem with soldiers doing that, and they all said, well, I'll go back there for help, and you never see them again. So they developed an ambulance corps, and so they had ambulances to transport the people instead of whatever was available, the uh, first buggy or anything they could get. They had uh, stretcher bearers and uh, medics, we could say, as call them today, uh, hospital attendants who would take people to a field hospital and try to treat them uh, as they could. The uh, big bullets shattered the bones 
And they say with modern medicine, they couldn't do any better on uh, restoring bones. But uh, the doctors got really good at doing amputations. They could amputate a limb in 10 minutes uh, or less. And the reason for that was to save the person's life. Because they could not, uh, uh, since they didn't know about the germs and things, they were operating with the filthy clothes, the same instruments over and over that weren't sterilized, and the uh, uh, people would get infected. So in order to prevent gangrene, they would just cut the arm off. The uh, uh, National Cemeteries is another thing which came uh, about, uh, as well as hospitals and the uh, VA, Veterans Administration, that's another outgrowth of the Civil War. So uh, afterwards, uh, they learned about germs and then uh, later on the antibiotics. And uh, that brought us up to our uh, current state of medicine. Jake. Turning it over to Jake. Um, life for an average citizen of America during the Civil War was... Mainly, if you were from the north, you would have been a factory worker and so forth. And if you were southern, you were mainly a farm boy. From where we are, Kentucky, you were kind of somewhat both. Southern regions, you were farm boy and stuff like that. Um... But whenever the war broke out, uh, you had both armies coming through. Uh, Kentucky did not want to declare itself a southern or a northern state. So you had both armies coming through, taking whoever they could get. Some, um, some regiments would be desperate for soldiers, and if you were... If you had one finger missing, but you could still pull a trigger, that'd still take you. Um, what they would do is you had to have two teeth. One here, well, one on the upper and one on below. Um... So you could tear open cartridges and stuff like that. Now, I, the story with my family is we were it we're in we were in the middle of Kentucky. So, um, my one of my ancestors on my grandfather's side, and he was twelve years old whenever the war broke out. And they got word that the Confederacy was coming through Kentucky. So his parents didn't want him being taken. So what they did was they dressed him up as a little girl and sent him out to the field to work. And thankfully it worked and he didn't have to serve. But... Throughout the war, uh, further, they were becoming more desperate, losing more men. 
and just taking what they could get. Okay, caller. Um, prior to the Civil War, uh, guns were large caliber uh, smoothbore guns. And smoothbore meant that, that inside the barrel there was nothing but just smooth metal. No grooves, no rifling. And prior to the Civil War, uh, they would line up shoulder to shoulder and fire, and fire their guns at the exact same time because that's the only way that, you know, somebody could hit something. Because uh, uh, smoothbore guns, uh, they were accurate to about 75 yards. Past that, you might be trying to shoot somebody and it might hit somebody far to the right. Uh, but in 1855, um, the U.S. adopted the first um, a rifled musket. And uh, that dropped down to, to 58 caliber, which is still uh, pretty big. And the big advantage of that is you can now shoot about 1,000 yards, which is the length of 10 football fields. And also, like Carrie mentioned, from the bullet uh, called the mini ball um, was invented in 1855, I think, by, by Claude Manet, a French captain. Uh, something else that, that came from the war was also um, um, Navy. Prior to the Civil War, they were big wooden ships uh, powered by sail. And shortly before the Civil War, they came out with the steam engine, which, which didn't use wind. Sorry. It only used steam. And the Confederates, they attached a metal plating to the sides of the guns or to the ships which would make them much more stronger than the wooden ships so you know a modern a navy ships have their their roots in the 1860s just like guns navy pretty much a lot of things all right and gary can you tell us some facts about the civil war uh, yes, ma'am. Be glad to. Uh, just uh, following up on uh, his uh, statement here about the uh, Navy and stuff in the Civil War, they actually developed, started developing submarines, believe it or not, back in the Civil War. And I think it was probably in the latter part of it, but uh, uh, they recovered a, a, a Civil War submarine uh, not too long ago and brung it up and stuff, and it still had the remains of the, uh, some of the soldiers that died in it whenever it sank. It was called H.N. Hunley, and it is now on display in Charleston, South Carolina. But uh, uh, as far as the, some of the uh, uh, casualties and stuff during the Civil War, Kentucky had a lot of soldiers compared to some of the other states uh, because we was a borderline state. and. Uh, we had like in the neighborhood of about 75,000 uh, Union soldiers and about 28,000 Confederate soldiers. And particularly here in eastern Kentucky, it was really divided because 
uh, you had one area that would be uh, uh, Union, and then maybe across the river in another small area you'd have a, a Confederates. And you actually did have uh, people, you know, families fighting families, and some people had divided families, and some of them would fight for the South, some of them would fight for the North. And uh, that actually carried on uh, after a long, long time after the Civil War, and it almost looks like some of those boundary lines and stuff still exist as to, to today as we speak. But as a whole, the Civil War and stuff, there was there was like six hundred and twenty thousand soldiers died during the Civil War, and uh, out of the six hundred and twenty some thousand, uh, there was like uh, what was it four 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 hundred thousand died of disease, 200,000 stuff died from actual bullet wounds. So, you know, it was a really bad time back then and stuff, and uh, particularly here in, in the mountains and stuff, because you never knew from one day to the next who was going to come through, and they, then they would actually confiscate and rob and pillage from the people here in the mountains and stuff. So, you know, lots of times the people would actually take their livestock and anything that they had, you know, if they could, they heard that one group was coming through, then they'd take it and hide that stuff to try to keep from being starved to death. It was a really bad time here in the, in the mountains. It really was. Okay. All right. Thank you guys very much. And join us next time for Episode 3, where we talk about an actual Civil War reenactment. Hello, this is Kathy Conley here at Knott County Central High School, and I'm in room 112 with our historians of the Roundtable. Today we're going to talk to you about an actual Civil War reenactment. I have some professionals here with me, and they participate in Civil War reenactments in the local area, and I'm going to just hope that they will share some of their experiences and what a person could expect if they'd never been to Civil War reenactment. So we'll we'll start with Jake. Hello, um, I've been doing the Civil War reenactments from what I've said for around three years. Um, I am a corporal, mainly union. Uh, basically what a corporal's job is, he's supposed to repeat the commands um, so, for example, um, if we're load and hold, which means we load around and we hold, um, I'm supposed to yell back that command, uh, in case if someone, like, 
doesn't hear or something like that. And basically, another job for us is to make sure that privates and recruits know what they're doing. So, uh, when you first come to a Civil War reenactment, uh, things you're going to see is how the soldiers lived back then. So, you know, you're, I'm sorry, you're going to see camps, campfires, uh, people wearing period correct clothing, and it's going to smell like, like smoke. Smells like gunpowder, too, after a battle. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a reenactment's multifaceted. We spend one day on uh, our education day where uh, we'll have probably 20 stations doing various things of uh, pioneer living and Civil War uh, for school kids. So they will see people making soap, making salt, spinning wool, making fabric, doing blacksmithing. Uh, there may be weapons demonstrations, or uh, flags, or medical. Uh, there'll be people talking about uh, history, various subjects. So uh, we, we uh, put a lot of work into our education day. The uh, typical reenactment is, uh, takes place on the weekend, and there uh, we have... Uh, Things for men and for the women. The, the guys, of course, like the battles to get out and shoot and bang, and uh, which is always more fun to do than to watch. And the women like the ladies' tea, and they like a ball. So we have some of that uh, for everybody, and we also have a period church service. So there's uh, just various aspects of the living of the time, and whenever someone comes there, um, they can see all this, and they can kind of feel like they're in a time warp. Do you want to talk about costs? Uh, actually, uh, we're really fortunate at our particular reenactment at the Battle of Leatherwood is because that uh, we, uh, we have really, really good uh, area support. And whenever I say area, you know, it's not just one county. It's not just one particular uh, area of the state. I mean, uh, because we do have really good support and stuff, our event is total free unless you were to just buy some food from a food booth or something other. But as far as the uh, reenactment itself is, the, uh, the uh, parking is free. Uh, we give away our uh, annual publication every year that we put together, which is a very, very nice uh, booklet. Uh, we give those away free. And uh, our battle is at uh, 2 o'clock. It's free, and uh, both Saturday and Sunday. And then the ladies' tea that they have for the ladies, uh, that's free also. And uh, for the uh, school day the activities that we have on Friday the, uh, that weekend, uh, they can bring their school kids and stuff, and if they just get their bus uh, uh, fare and gas money and stuff and pay the people to do that, then they're in good shape because we don't charge it, uh, for anything in our reenactment. Which, like I said, you buy a little trinket or something out of the store and maybe uh, 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 
to get a uh, uh, some food from a food booth, and we do have various different food booths there that has a lot of different uh, food and stuff uh, served up for the uh, the uh, public. Uh, Another thing, too, that I think is really interesting about our reenactment is the fact that it was held, it is held, on the original battlefield. And, uh, you know, as part of that reenactment stuff, we are continuing to develop an 1860 village on the properties that are at the Battle of Leatherwood. And everybody comes every, every year and they want to see what, what's been new, what's been accomplished and stuff from one year to the next. But... Uh, uh, one of the things that we're really, really proud of also is, is our education that we do for our young people. And uh, we actually go into some of the schools whenever we're asked to and do classroom uh, demonstrations and stuff for them. And uh, we do uh, different presentations. And, uh, you know, if we can get our young people involved in it and then they can learn more about, uh, about our local history, and uh, the, the importance that it played during the Civil War, uh, I think that's one of the greatest things that we can accomplish. Okay, that's awesome. So let's say a teacher wanted to bring a class to this Leatherwood reenactment. How would they go about scheduling and letting you know they're coming? They will uh, typically call and uh, make a reservation. The first question a teacher or principal ask is how much does it cost per student and the answer is always nothing just get your bus fare if they go to Boonesboro or any of those places you know they'll be paying eight bucks a head or uh, some fee we do this as a public service and uh, we uh, have the community support I say that uh, with the counties and the shoe leather express selling ads in our publication uh, pays our bills, so therefore we allowed we're, we're able to offer this to uh, the schools as long as we have space for them. And I say we will typically get thirty to forty buses on an average year. Uh, then the kids can go back and read up on it and uh, discuss it and uh, tell their friends, and then they all want to come back next year. And I think that's how these. Two guys, Kyler and Jake, got really interested in the Civil War. They went to a reenactment, and I think they've been bit by the Civil War bug ever since. That old Leatherwood. Yeah. Can you tell us what it was like the first time you ever went? Yeah. So uh, when we first arrived, um, it, um, it turned into a beautiful day. You know, sunshine. Uh, when we first got there, I think it was about 9 o'clock, and it was all gloomy and cloudy. And what I heard of the Civil War, you know, because I always thought of, you know, sadness. So, you know, my first thought was, huh, this, this kind of, you know, but, uh, so what we did, we toured on the various stations. They took us uh, to a schoolhouse, and we learned what it was like for a kid during that time to be in school. And then they took us around uh, to the medicine, to the blacksmith to the guns, uh, showing us how they were uh, loaded and used. And then, you know, they had uh, the skirmishes. For about five to seven minutes, they would stand out there and, and shoot. And that was, was, you know, really cool. Except we didn't get to watch it because our teacher just kept on making us, you know, pay attention to the people. 
Yeah. Well, that's but, uh, what teachers yeah. do sometimes. You have to, you have to forgive them sometimes. Yeah. And like Jake said, you know, he always had the big interest in it, but he never really, like, how do I say this, Jake? Basically, I thought I was too young. Yeah. Um, for, I hear from most some people, uh, how old do you have to be uh, to participate? And really, you, as long as you uh, can hold a rifle, know how to use it, you're good to go. Well, you have to be competent to right. demonstrate proficiency with it. Safety is a big issue since right. these are real guns, and uh, you don't point them at people. You know, you aim over their head or around them or something like that. You don't pull out bayonets and knives, and you know we uh, we have fun, but we uh, we don't carry realism to exactly. great lengths. You know. Yeah. I mean, that is a question we get asked a lot, is are those guns that you're using real? And yes, they're 100% real, because I can easily put a rock or something down there and fire it, and it can kill somebody. You'll notice before a battle, everyone lines up and they uh, will fire their guns at the ground. And there'll be an officer walking along, and he's looking to see, does the grass move? Because these guns... A uh, guy could be out hunting deer with him the previous week, and if he's got a bullet in that thing, then he's going to blast that into the ground. And uh, well, then uh, once you see it, the uh, gun's empty, then we know it's safe to go on the field. Mm-hmm. Another thing too is that you know he's talking about. Uh, he thought maybe it may be too young to participate. There is some reenactments that they have age limits on certain stuff like that, but uh, ours uh, reenactment, we have always took the idea of trying to include young people into our event, not exclude people. And by doing that, we've been able to use people as young as maybe five, six-year-old to be flag barriers, somebody to carry the flag out on a battlefield or something other than that. They have another one that would be maybe a message carrier for the officers. Or they have another one that maybe uh, would be like a water boy or something to take uh, uh, drinks to soldiers after they get, maybe get get exhausted or something they need a drink of water. So we, we try to include uh, as many people as possible in our reenactment. And it has been very successful by doing this. No one's ever got hurt. And uh, we've always had a really good time of doing it, and that's one of the reasons that we attract this uh, to the young people in the area. Wonderful. Well, can you guys tell us when the next reenactment is, what the dates are on it coming up? I think it's in the fall. Well, uh, the uh, next thing coming up is uh, April the 6th is School of the Soldier. Okay. So uh, people ask a lot of times, how do you get into reenacting? And, uh, you know, it's uh, complicated a little bit, but what uh, we're going to do is offer a school for, it's open to the public, to anybody who's interested in this, who's male or female, and uh, they can come over and you'll learn the basics. It'll be uh, marching, how do you move people, uh, a large group of people, you know, in a small space. We'll talk about our safety things, our weapons, 
At the end of it, we're going to have a uh, skirmish. And then uh, the last event of the day is going to be a weapons cleaning party. <laughs> and we'll have a free lunch for everybody. We're going to have our cooks there, and uh, we'll provide food. The actual reenactment is always with us the fourth weekend of October. So the fourth weekend never varies. Don't think it's the last weekend of October because you'll be the only one there most likely. Some uh, months have five weekends, and people have uh, messed their schedules up like that. But uh, this year's the uh, 25th, 6th, and 7th, I believe, of October. The uh, 25th, again, is our education day, primarily for school kids, but again, open to the public. And then the uh, Saturday and Sunday is the thing for uh, when you'll have uh, speakers. The last couple of years, we've been having uh, Kentucky Chautauqua speakers, which are uh, some very excellent professionals. We had Jefferson Davis, and then last year we had Abe Lincoln, and this year we're uh, considering who we're going to have. Uh, that uh, was the first thing uh, to start off on Saturday morning, then they had the ladies' tea at noon, and then our battles are always 2 o'clock. We keep them like that because it makes it easy for people who go to other reenactments to remember 2 o'clock battle, you know, get there in time. Yeah. And then the ball is in the evening, 7 o'clock. It's uh, off that area. But uh, that'll uh, wear everybody out by Saturday night. Then our Sunday's the church service at 10 and another battle at 2, and then everybody goes home, and they all feel bad because we're so late in the year. We're just about the last reenactment, you know, of the year. So they got to take off for the winter and wait for the spring to start up again. These things are like family reunions, what they are. I was going to yeah. say, I'm sure you have repeat customers uh, year after year, and hopefully schools will catch on if they've not already joined up and gone to it. Um, hopefully they will, and I'm very excited. You guys did an excellent, um, an excellent job talking about the reenactment. So we'll see you next time at Knox County Central with historians of the Roundtable. This is Kathy Conley here at Knott County Central High School, and I'm in room 112 with a group of experts on the Civil War. And we kind of call ourselves Historians of the Roundtable. This is our fourth episode, and today they're going to talk to you about life of a Civil War soldier. So, who would like to start? Okay, Jake? Uh, 
So, recruitment during the Civil War was very strict in the beginning. You had to be eligible to serve. Uh, they From the start, they were looking for uh, 18 to uh, in mid-30s. And for the Union, um, once you enlisted, they they would have a wagon uh, with uniforms, rifles, and uh, your ammo, cartridge box, and stuff like that. And once you signed the papers, uh, they would take you over and they would inspect you. Uh, check if you had like anything wrong with you and gave you and if you were perfect and healthy they would give you your uniform and they would send you over there with the rest now the some folks in the north and a lot in the south what they a lot of the younger generation wanted to serve too uh, there was reports of one of the thing, like early war, if you were young and wanted to enlist, uh, what someone would tell you to do is you would have a little piece of paper, write down the number 18, put it in your shoe, and if they ask, are you over the 18, and you would say, I'm directly over 18. <laughs> <laughs> How clever. Now, whenever we was... 62, whenever Lincoln called for more troops, um, they uh, lowered the age where you could enlist, and it was starting through uh, around 14 and 50, and the enlistment age uh, started to decrease and decrease if you're younger and increase for older and a lot a lot of them didn't want to serve they thought the war was pointless and so what they did was a so-called draft where they would basically uh, come into your hometown and like force you out of your house to serve and if you didn't you would be killed most of the time now the life of a civil war soldier you know wasn't that different from a union soldier to a confederate soldier things you would see difference is food and some of the music too now in the north, uh, they were given a very hard biscuit called hardtack. It was nothing but just flour, water, and sometimes salt put in, baked until it's hard, uh, as hard as a rock. And they would also given uh, them uh, salt pork, which is pork that is heavily salted. You know, hence the name um, salt pork. Steamed vegetables, or vegetables, and you know water to drink
but in the South, they wasn't that fortunate. They had hardtack too, but um, uh, some resources say that uh, they were given uh, bacon also and cornmeal. So they would fry up the bacon, uh, put the cornmeal into the pot, uh, swoosh it up until it's a dough. Take it and wrap it around the ramrod and cook it. Basically turn it into a little bread. They called it swoosh. And, and the music was also part of a soldier's life. Because most of the time you're not going to be fighting. Most of the time you're going to be drilling, guard duty, and when you're off that, just, you know, sit, sit around the camps. So they would play songs. And a very a common and very popular song during the war was called, it was called Lorena. Uh, some of the commanders banned this song because they thought it encouraged um, desertion. Because it talked about uh, the people back home. Made people think of them. Made them want to go back leave the army. Uh, some other thong, or songs were, were you know, uh, to, to boost morale. Uh, Bonnie Blue Flag, Dixie for the South, and for the North, uh, Battle Cry of Freedom, um, uh, When Johnny Comes Marching Home Again, uh, the Battle Hymn of the Republic, and much more. But those are some of the most common and most popular songs during the war. Uh, Carrie, Gary, y'all want to add something? Uh, yeah, I can touch base on uh, something other that some of the soldiers actually uh, had to go through. Uh, the Union soldiers were pretty well equipped as far as like uh, uniforms and stuff like that, but some of the Southern boys and stuff... Uh, they actually end up fighting battles and stuff barefooted because they didn't have the proper shoes and stuff to, to wear back then. But uh, uh, something other that uh, I've realized uh, by participating in some of this stuff that uh, the shoes that they made back then was made out of solid leather. It didn't have any uh, uh, any brads or anything like that in it. And uh, whenever they first made the shoes, uh, they were made to fit either foot. But after you wore it for a while, and it got wet and dried back out, and wet and dried back out, then it sort of took the shape of your foot. And they didn't have the luxury of picking what size that they got to wear, you know, if they was actually had a battle somewhere or another, and, and there was some soldier from the opposing side there, and he had a really nice-looking pair of shoes and stuff on. Well, guess what? Every opportunity that somebody got, then they would pick those shoes up, and then they would scavenge them and take them with them, along with even a good musket or maybe some uh, powder or, or stuff that they would have been able to use, you know, later on. And also, uh, whenever they were traveling and stuff from one place to one location to another and stuff like that, then, you know, they had they may have had some hard tack if they was lucky uh, because that was just made strictly of flour, like you said, and, and some salt. It's basically a really hard cracker. But uh, as they were traveling from place to place like that, if they saw a squirrel, a rabbit, or if they come by a farmhouse somewhere or another and they had a, a big uh, a collection of food put away, you know, then they would actually scavenge that stuff up or they'd commandeer it, you know, for the army and leave the, uh, the residents and stuff with just about nothing. And a lot of them, the families left back then, 
particularly the women and the small kids that was left there on the farms and stuff, you know, they was almost like starvation, you know. And they never knew from one day to the next which army was going to be coming through Kentucky, so, you know, they really had a difficult time. If the, uh, if the ladies didn't actually know a lot about the local herbs and, uh, and, uh, and the green edibles and stuff that they could get, you know, from the woods in the area around here, you know, then they actually starved. They really did. But uh, they, whenever you get really hungry, then you'll, you'll start remembering what's edible and what's not. And uh, that's where a lot of our, our greens and stuff that we actually eat today, you know, that uh, came from because of people remembers that time from back during the Civil War. So, you know, it's, uh, it's tough on the soldiers and stuff. I know the, the shoes, the, the shoes that they wore back then, with them being they little solid leather, Man, whenever they dried out, they was hard as a rock, and they was slick as they can be. And your best friend, if you had to wear some of those shoes, was a big, thick pair of wool socks. And uh, and uh, those were really hard to come by also. So it was not uncommon for you past dead soldiers and stuff after battles and stuff and find them barefooted uh, with no shoes and socks. And, and actually, if they had anything... Uh, warm to wear during the cold weather and stuff, then they, they strip the clothing and stuff off the soldiers also. So that's just my take on part of this, you know, life of the Civil War soldier back then. Curry, you got anything to add to that? Well, we could talk about the importance of salt. Yes, very much so. The Battle of Leatherwood was over salt because at the time, canning was not common, and it was the only method to preserve meat. And they had to preserve meat in order to be able to send it to the army. So any place there was the major salt works, you'd find troops there, and uh, they would be getting the salt, or they'd be trying to get the other army away from the salt. So uh, Saltville, Virginia was the major one for the Confederacy. And here in our area, we had uh, some in Clay County, near Manchester, was Goose Creek, had several salt works till the uh, Union guys came in and dumped cannonballs down the well. And that's what the Confederates were doing at the uh, uh, Cornetsville, which actually is where, that's the name of the town where uh, we're located. And that's what the Leatherwood is a creek. That's what the Battle of Leatherwood was about, was the Confederates were there getting the salt when the Union guys from Harlan, next county over, came over the hill and uh, shot it out with them. So they, uh, the Union guys stole all the uh, salt and whatever else they could get. The big pound of cornbread, they said, was weighed about 50 pounds, and they took all that uh, back home with them. And then the uh, Confederates went to Whitesburg, about 30 miles away, and the uh, captain had been uh, shot while he was uh, standing behind too small of a tree. And uh, when he went to the hospital in Whitesburg, his brother was a colonel over there. And when somebody shoots your brother, that makes you mad. So the colonel rounded up 500 guys and went over to chase off these 40 Union guys <laughs> who had uh, taken over their salt works. Mm -hmm. Oh, the uh, early on in the war, the soldiers did not do much entrenchments. They believed in frontal attacks. And uh, 
General Lee, who was famous later in the war, didn't do well early in the war, was sent to West Virginia, and uh, he tried to get the guys there to dig trenches. And he said that, you know, they, uh, they called him Granny, old Granny Lee. He was so slow and all that because it took time. But later in the war, he said that these guys can dig a trench faster than a groundhog. <laughs> so uh, later in the war, they got used to being able to toss up a barricade on short order made out of logs, dirt, and whatever else they had. We tell everybody, uh, look at our website, thebattleofleatherwood.com, and we have various things on there uh, uh, from uh, how to make a Civil War wallet. We have pictures from uh, several years of uh, some of our activities. And we typically post uh, new things. We just had an art show there uh, recently. And we're in the process of expanding to... Uh, Brashearville, which was the name of the, the old town at the time of the Civil War. We have been given some uh, buildings in Knott County, and we're in the process of moving some of those to our battlefield, which will make an even better place. And it preserves the old architecture of the period, and uh, the history of uh, these buildings were historic when they were moved to uh the, their current location, and uh, we're uh, continuing to preserve that history and let people come around and and uh, keep these for future generations. Okay. Well, thank you for joining us on our adventures in the Civil War, and we hope you tune in for further episodes. Hello, this is Kathy Conley here at Knott County Central High School, and I'm in room 112 with our historians of the Roundtable. Today we're going to talk to you about an actual Civil War reenactment. I have some professionals here with me, and they participate in Civil War reenactments in the local area, and I'm going to just hope that they will share some of their experiences and what a person could expect if they'd never been to a Civil War reenactment. So we'll we'll start with Jake. Hello, um, I've been doing the Civil War reenactments from what I've said for around three years. Um, I am a corporal, mainly Union. Uh, basically, what a corporal's job is, he's supposed to repeat the commands. Um, so, for example, um, if we're load and hold, which means we load around and we hold, um, 
I'm supposed to yell back that command uh, in case if someone like doesn't hear or something like that. And basically, another job for us is to make sure that privates and recruits know what they're doing. So, uh, when you first come to a Civil War reenactment, uh, things you're going to see is how the soldiers lived back then. So, you know, you're, so you're going to see camps, campfires, uh, people wearing period-correct clothing, and it's going to smell like, like smoke. Smells like gunpowder, too, after a battle. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a reenactment is multifaceted. We spend one day on uh, our education day where uh, we'll have probably 20 stations doing various things of uh, pioneer living and Civil War uh, for school kids. So they will see people making soap, making salt, spinning wool, making fabric, doing blacksmithing. Uh, there may be weapons demonstrations, or uh, flags, or medical. Uh, there'll be people talking about uh, history, various subjects. So uh, we, we uh, put a lot of work into our education day. The uh, typical reenactment is, uh, takes place on the weekend, and there uh, we have... Uh, things for men and for the women. The, the guys, of course, like the battles to get out and shoot and bang, and, uh, which is always more fun to do than to watch. And the women like the ladies' tea, and they like a ball. So we have some of that uh, for everybody, and we also have a period church service. So there's uh, just various aspects of the living at the time, and whenever someone comes there, um, they can see all this, and they can kind of feel like they're in a time warp. Do you want to talk about costs? Uh, actually, uh, we're really fortunate that our particular reenactment at the Battle of Leatherwood is because that uh, we, uh, we have really, really good uh, area support. Whenever I say area, you know, it's not just one county. It's not just one particular uh, area of the state. I mean, uh, because we do have really good support and stuff, our event is total free unless you were to just buy some food from a food booth or something other. But as far as the uh, reenactment itself is, the, uh, the uh, parking is free. Uh, we give away our uh, annual publication every year that we put together, which is a very, very nice uh, booklet. Uh, we give those away free. And uh, our battle is at uh, 2 o'clock. It's free, and uh, both Saturday and Sunday. And then the ladies' tea that they have for the ladies, uh, that's free also. And uh, for the uh, school day the activities that we have on Friday the, uh, that weekend, uh, they can bring their school kids and stuff, and if they just get their bus uh, uh, fare and gas money and stuff and pay the people to do that, then they're in good shape because we don't charge it, uh, 
for anything in our reenactment, which, like I said, you buy a little trinket or something out of the store and maybe uh, 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 get a, uh, uh, some food from a food booth. And we do have various different food booths there that has a lot of different uh, food and stuff to serve up for the, uh, the uh, public. Uh, another thing, too, that I think is really interesting about our reenactment is the fact that it was held, it is held, on the original battlefield. And, uh, you know, as part of that reenactment stuff, we are continuing to develop a 1860 village on the properties that are at the Battle of Leatherwood. And everybody comes every, every year and they want to see what, what's been new, what's been accomplished and stuff from one year to the next. But uh, uh, one of the things that we're really, really proud of also is, is our education that we do for our young people. And uh, we actually go into some of the schools whenever we we're asked to and do classroom uh, demonstrations and stuff for them. And uh, we do uh, different presentations. And, uh, you know, if we can get our young people involved in it and then they can learn more about, uh, about our local history and uh, the, the importance that it played during the Civil War, uh, I think that's one of the greatest things that we can accomplish. Okay, that's awesome. So let's say a teacher wanted to bring a class to this Leatherwood reenactment. How would they go about scheduling and letting you know they're coming? They will uh, typically call and uh, make a reservation. The first question a teacher or principal asks is, how much does it cost per student? And the answer is always nothing. Just get your bus fare. If they go to Boonesboro or any of those places, you know, they would be paying eight bucks a head or uh, some fee. We do this as a public service, and uh, we uh, have the community support. I say that uh, with the counties and the Shoe Leather Express selling ads in our publication uh, pays our bills. So therefore, we allowed, we're, we're able to offer this to uh, the schools as long as we have space for them. And I say we will typically get 30 to 40 buses on an average year. Uh, then the kids can go back and read up on it and uh, discuss it and uh, tell their friends, and then they all want to come back next year. And I think that's how these two guys, Kyler and Jake, got really interested in the Civil War. They went to a reenactment and think they've been bit by the Civil War bug the ever since. That old Weatherwood. Yeah. Can you tell us what it was like the first time you ever went? Yeah. So uh, when we first arrived... Um, it, um, it turned into a beautiful day, you know, sunshine. Uh, when we first got there, I think it was about 9 o'clock, and it was all gloomy and cloudy. And what I heard of the Civil War, you know, because I always thought of, you know, sadness. So, you know, my first thought was, huh, it's, it's kind of... But, uh, so what we did, we toured um, the various stations. They took us uh, to a schoolhouse, and we learned what it was like for a kid during that time to be in school and then they took us around to the medicine to the blacksmith to the guns uh, showing us how they were uh, loaded and used and then you know they had uh, the skirmishes for about five to seven minutes they would stand out there and 
and shoot. And that was, was you know, really cool. Except we didn't get to watch it because our teacher just kept on making us, you know, pay attention to the people. Yeah. Well, that's but, what uh, teachers yeah. do sometimes. You have to, you have to forgive them sometimes. Yeah. And like Jake said, you know, he always had the big interest in it, but he never really, like, how do I say this, Jake? Basically, I thought I was too young. Yeah. Um, for I hear from most some people, uh, how old do you have to be uh, to participate? And really, as long as you uh, can hold a rifle, know how to use it, you're good to go. Well, you have to be competent to right. demonstrate proficiency with it. Safety is a big issue since yeah. these are real guns, and uh, you don't point them at people. You know, you aim over their head or around them or something like that. And you don't pull out bayonets and knives. And you know, we uh, we have fun, but we uh, we don't carry realism to exactly. great lengths. You know. Yeah. I mean, that is a question we get asked a lot, is are those guns that you're using real? And yes, they're 100% real, because I can easily put a rock or something down there and fire it, and it can kill somebody. Yeah. You'll notice before a battle, everyone lines up and they uh, will fire their guns at the ground. And there'll be an officer walking along, and he's looking to see, does the grass move? Because these guns... A uh, guy could be out hunting deer with him the previous week. And if he's got a bullet in that thing, then he's going to blast that into the ground. And uh, we'll, then uh, once you see it, the uh, gun's empty, then we know it's safe to go on the field. Mm -hmm. Another thing, too, is that, you know, he's talking about uh, he thought maybe it may be too young to participate. There is some reenactments that they have age limits on certain stuff like that, but uh, ours uh, reenactment, we have always took the idea of trying to include young people into our event, not exclude people. Right. And by doing that, we've been able to use people as young as maybe five, six-year-old to be flag barriers, somebody to carry the flag out on a battlefield or something other and then that. They have another one that would be maybe a message carrier for the officers. Or they have another one that maybe uh, would be like a water boy or something to take uh, uh, drinks to soldiers after they get, maybe get get exhausted or something they need a drink of water. So we, we try to include uh, as many people as possible in our reenactment. And it has been very successful by doing this. No one's ever got hurt. And uh, we've always had a really good time of doing it, and that's one of the reasons that we attract this uh, to the young people in the area. Wonderful. Well, can you guys tell us when the next reenactment is, what the dates are on it coming up? I think it's uh, in the fall. Well, uh, the uh, next thing coming up is uh, April the 6th is School of the Soldier. Okay. So uh, people ask a lot of times, how do you get into reenacting? And, uh, you know, it's uh, complicated a little bit, but what uh, we're going to do is offer a school for, it's open to the public, to anybody who's interested in this, who's male or female, and uh, they can come over and you'll learn the basics. It'll be uh, marching, 
how do you move people, uh, a large group of people, you know, in a small space. We'll talk about our safety things, our weapons. At the end of it, we're going to have a uh, skirmish. And then uh, the last event of the day is going to be a weapons cleaning party. <laughs> and we have a free lunch for everybody. We're going to have our cooks there, and uh, we'll provide food. The actual reenactment is always with us the fourth weekend of October. So the fourth weekend never varies. Don't think it's the last weekend of October because you'll be the only one there most likely. Some uh, months have five weekends, and people have uh, messed their schedules up like that. But uh, this year's the uh, 25th, 6th, and 7th, I believe, of October. The uh, 25th, again, is our education day, primarily for school kids, but again, open to the public. And then the uh, Saturday and Sunday is the thing for uh, when you'll have uh, speakers. The last couple of years, we've been having uh, Kentucky Chautauqua speakers, which are uh, some very excellent professionals. We had Jefferson Davis, and then last year we had Abe Lincoln, and this year we're uh, considering who we're going to have. Uh, that uh, was the first thing uh, to start off on Saturday morning. Then they had the ladies' tea at noon, and then our battles are always 2 o'clock. We keep them like that because it makes it easy for people who go to other reenactments to remember 2 o'clock battle, you know, get there in time. And then the ball is in the evening at 7 o'clock. It's uh, off that area, but uh, that'll uh, wear everybody out by Saturday night. Then our Sunday's the church service at 10, and another battle at 2, and then everybody goes home, and they all feel bad because we're so late in the year. We're just about the last reenactment, you know, of the year, so they got to take off for the winter and wait for the spring to start up again. These things are like family reunions, what they are. I was going to yeah. say, I'm sure you have repeat customers uh, year after year, and uh, hopefully schools will catch on if they've not already joined up and gone to it. Um, hopefully they will. And I'm very excited. You guys did an excellent, um, an excellent job talking about the reenactment. So we'll see you next time at Knott County Central with Historians of the Roundtable. Hey, this is Kathy Conley here at Knott County Central High School in room 112, and I'm sitting here 
once again with these wonderful historians of the Roundtable. And today we're going to talk about interesting facts about the Civil War. And I have with me Carrie, Jake, Kyler, and Gary. And I'm just going to let them talk to us about their level or their area of expertise in the Civil War. Do you want to start, Carrie? One thing interests me is the uh, medicine of the Civil War. All modern medicine stemmed from the Civil War. Prior to uh, that time, they had three remedies for whatever was wrong with you. They would bleed a person, say they had bad blood, or they would give them a laxative, or they would give them some noxious mixture which made them vomit. So that was a typical remedy for anything from a broken arm to colds or pneumonia. So at the time of the Civil War, the uh, doctors felt everybody bled enough, so they're not going to bleed anymore. Uh, so they said, we'll do without that remedy. And they tried uh, various medicines. They didn't know about antibiotics. That came about, I believe, in like 1928. Uh, they didn't know about germs. So that was a real problem because they would have the outhouse uphill and the well downhill, and so many got dysentery or cholera. A lot of the uh, folks were young guys who had lived at the head of the holler, and uh, when they joined the army, they had never had the childhood diseases, such as mumps, chicken pox, or measles. So when they got in the army, they all got sick. And at the uh, initial uh, start of the war, they took everybody who wanted to volunteer. They all came in. Well, uh, after a while, they decided they better start giving some of these people physicals because uh, the folks came in with various diseases or inabilities. They, uh, they couldn't march or something like that. And uh, then they wound up trying to get a government pension later on uh, because they, uh, they had been a veteran. So uh, they, they started doing physicals, uh, although they, the physicals weren't very thorough because they had like uh, 400 women who served as soldiers. The uh, death rate from disease was twice what it was from uh, bullets. The uh, Army of the Potomac was one of the first who uh, developed a hospital corps. They had uh, typically, initially, uh, the people in a battle would have their buddies would take them uh, back to the back of the field. Um, and they had a problem with soldiers doing that, and they all said, well, I'll go back there for help. And you never see them again. So they developed an ambulance corps, and so they had ambulances to transport the people instead of whatever was available, the uh, first buggy or anything they could get. They had uh, stretcher bearers and uh, medics, we could say, as call them today, uh, hospital attendants who would take people to a field hospital and try to treat them uh, as they could. The uh, big bullets shattered the bones. And they say with modern medicine, they couldn't do any better on uh, restoring bones. But uh, the doctors got really good 
at doing amputations. They could amputate a limb in 10 minutes uh, or less. And the reason for that was to save the person's life because they could not, uh, uh, since they didn't know about the germs and things, they were operating with the filthy clothes, the same instruments over and over that weren't sterilized, and the uh, uh, people would get infected. So in order to prevent gangrene, they would just cut the arm off. The uh, uh, National Cemeteries is another thing which came uh, about, uh, as well as hospitals and the uh, VA, Veterans Administration. That's another outgrowth of the Civil War. So uh, afterwards, uh, they learned about germs and then uh, later on the antibiotics. And uh, that brought us up to our uh, current state of medicine. Jake. Turning it over to Jake. Um, life for an average citizen of America during the Civil War was... Mainly, if you were from the north, you would have been a factory worker and so forth. And if you were southern, you were mainly a farm boy. From where we are, Kentucky, you were kind of somewhat both. Southern regions, you were farm boy and stuff like that. Um... But whenever the war broke out, uh, you had both armies coming through. Uh, Kentucky did not want to declare itself a southern or a northern state. So you had both armies coming through, taking whoever they could get. Some, um, some regiments would be desperate for soldiers, and if you were... If you had one finger missing, but you could still pull a trigger, that'd still take you. Um, what they would do is you had to have two teeth. One here, well, one on the upper and one on below. Um... So you could tear open cartridges and stuff like that. Now, I, the story with my family is we were it we're in we were in the middle of Kentucky. So, um, my one of my ancestors on my grandfather's side, and he was twelve years old whenever the war broke out. And they got word that the Confederacy was coming through Kentucky. So his parents didn't want him being taken. So what they did was they dressed him up as a little girl and sent him out to the field to work. And thankfully it worked and he didn't have to serve. But... Throughout the war, uh, further, they were becoming more desperate, losing more men, and just taking what they could get. Okay, caller. 
um, prior to the Civil War, uh, guns were large caliber uh, smoothbore guns. And smoothbore meant that, that inside the barrel there was nothing but just smooth metal. No grooves, no rifling. And prior to the Civil War, uh, they would line up shoulder to shoulder and fire and fire their guns at the exact same time because that's the only way that you know somebody could hit something. Because uh, uh, smoothbore guns, uh, they were accurate to about 75 yards. Past that, you might be trying to shoot somebody and it might hit somebody far to the right. Uh, but in 1855, um, the U.S. adopted the first um, a rifled musket. And uh, that dropped down to, to 58 caliber, which is still uh, pretty big. And the big advantage of that is you can now shoot about 1,000 yards, which is the length of 10 football fields. And also, like Carrie mentioned, from the bullet uh, called the mini ball. Um, was invented in 1855, I think, by, by Claude Manet, a French captain. Uh, something else that, that came from the war was also um, um, Navy. Prior to the Civil War, they were big wooden ships uh, powered by sail. And shortly before the Civil War, they came out with the steam engine, which, which didn't use wind. Sure. It only used steam. And the Confederates, they attached a metal plating to the sides of the guns or to the ships, which would make them much more stronger than the wooden ships. So, you know, modern Navy ships have their, their roots in the 1860s, just like guns, Navy, pretty much a lot of things. All right. And Gary, can you tell us some facts about the Civil War? Uh, yes, ma'am. Be glad to. Uh, just uh, following up on uh, his uh, statement here about the uh, Navy and stuff in the Civil War, they actually developed, started developing submarines, believe it or not, back in the Civil War. And I think it was probably in the latter part of it, but uh, uh, they recovered a, a, a Civil War submarine uh, not too long ago and brung it up and stuff, and it still had the remains of the, uh, some of the soldiers that died in it whenever it sank. It was called H.N. Hunley, and it is now on display in Charleston, South Carolina. But uh, uh, as far as the, some of the uh, uh, casualties and stuff during the Civil War, Kentucky had a lot of soldiers compared to some of the other states uh, because we was a borderline state. And uh, we had, like, in the neighborhood of about 75,000 uh, Union soldiers and about 28,000 Confederate soldiers. And particularly here in eastern Kentucky, it was really divided because uh, you had one area that would be uh, uh, Union, and then maybe across the river, 
and in another small area you'd have a, a confederacy. And you actually did have uh, people, you know, families fighting families. And some people had divided families, and some of them would fight for the South, some of them would fight for the North. And uh, that actually carried on uh, after a long, long time after the Civil War, and it almost looks like some of those boundary lines and stuff still exist as to, to today as we speak. But as a whole, the Civil War and stuff, there was, there was like 620,000 soldiers died during the Civil War. And... Uh, out of the 620-some thousand, uh, it was like, uh, what was it, four, four, 400,000 died of disease, 200,000 stuff died from actual bullet wounds. So, you know, it was a really bad time back then and stuff, and uh, particularly here in, in the mountains and stuff, because you never knew from one day to the next who was going to come through, and they, then they would actually confiscate and rob and pillage from the people here in the mountains and stuff. So, you know, lots of times the people would actually take their livestock and anything that they had, you know, if they could, they heard that one group was coming through, then they'd take it and hide that stuff to try to keep from being starved to death. It was a really bad time here in the, in the mountains. It really was. Okay. All right. Thank you guys very much. And join us next time for Episode 3, where we talk about an actual Civil War reenactment.